with the offering prayer today, but uh, so we've been prayed for as we come to this passage, John chapter 17. Remembering this is the prayer of Jesus as he uh, is before his father on the night that uh, he has met with his disciples this last Passover night. He's about to be betrayed by Judas. Uh, He's about to be tried. He's about to be beaten. Uh, Soon he will go to the cross. And this is his his prayer that we have recorded for us. We know there was another prayer, a prayer of of, uh, great agony for Jesus in the garden. Uh, But this prayer is one that was heard by the disciples and prayed for those disciples and prayed for us as well. I want to begin with verse 10. Hear the word of God. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Again, this is this prayer that Jesus is praying. So we have this great opportunity to be inside, if you will, the Trinity, Father, Son, as, 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 as he's praying, as Jesus is speaking to his Father. Uh, we see what's on the very heart of the Son uh, at this most critical time in his life, most critical time in history, most critical, life, uh, most critical time for us as well. We see what's on his heart, we see what's on the Father's heart, because the same that is on the Son's heart is on the Father's heart, so Jesus prays. And as he prays for us, he prays a number of things. If you were here last Sunday, we took up the fact that he prayed that we be kept in the Father's name, not only kept by the power of the Father's name, but kept in it. That is, that we would be kept in a knowledge of who God is. His name, his very character, his very person. That we'd be kept in his presence, be kept in an understanding and a knowledge of who God is, and that that would inform everything about our lives. And we'd never stray from that. That's what Jesus is praying, that we'd be kept in his name. We know there's a great deal that could tempt us away from things which are true about God. And so Jesus prays that we be kept, not only be kept in his name, but that we be kept um, from the evil one, kept from evil. Uh, Jesus will go on to pray that we be sanctified. That is, that we be known that we're separated uh, for God and we would be separated for God in such a way that we would be made holy that he would work in us and transform us. Uh, Jesus prays that we all would be one, um, O-N-E, be unified, 
not just the church in one generation, but the church that would transcend generations, that all believers would be kept in his name, that all believers would be sanctified, that we would have those characteristics true of us from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. He also would go on to pray that we would see his glory, that we would be with him one day where he is and and see his glory, Uh, Jesus' heart for us to be in his very presence. Today I want to take up this part of this prayer, this petition really, that we find in verse 13. Jesus says, but now I am coming to you. So he he sets this one up, he sets this petition up by saying, Father, I'm I'm going to be coming to you soon, which he would be. He's going to be crucified, he'd rise, and then uh, 40 days later he would ascend. And so he says, I'm going to come to you. He's going to be glorified, Jesus is. He's going to be restored to that glory which he had before the world began. So he says, but now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world. That is, I haven't come yet. I'm still in the world, and I'm speaking these things in the context of this world. Now, this world could be a reference simply to this place. He's on the earth. That's where he is locationally. But we know that when John has used this generally, it has been not only a location, a place, but also this sense of of a, a way of life, a philosophy of life, a way of thinking about life that's contrary to God. And so you get this sense that here is Jesus in the midst of this hostility. Might not be able to see it, but it's there. This hostility, this world. And he says, I'm speaking these things in the context of this world, everything that I'm speaking and everything that I've been praying is contra. It's against this world. It's, they're saying, don't believe in God. I'm saying I'm He. They're saying, don't trust in God. I'm saying you must. They say, you don't need forgiveness of your sins from a Savior who is to come. I'm saying I'm that very Savior. They're saying you don't need a Lord to, to, to lead your life, a Lord to whom you should submit with allegiance and love, uh, joyfully, cheerfully. But, but Jesus is saying, but I've come to say that I'm that very one, and I'm the very bringer of the kingdom. And so he's saying, I'm saying all of this in the midst of this world. And so he paints this picture, and he says, so here's this petition now in the context of that, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus is praying that the very joy that's true of him, the very joy that he knows, the very joy in which he lives, the very joy which pilots his life, fuels his soul, if you will, that very joy is to be known by those who are his followers. That's his prayer. That's his prayer for us. Now, it's, it's interesting that Jesus prays. Throughout the scripture, as we read about the life of Jesus, we, we read that he prays. And, and he prays, and it's interesting to us because he's the Son of God, and we think, why should he need to pray? But then we know he's the Son of Man. We know that he's God in the flesh. And we realize that as the perfect man, he understands like no other man would understand and lives out like no other person would be able to live out what it means to be as a man, as a person, as a human being, in relationship to God. And what that meant for Jesus was utter dependence as evidenced by his praying. He didn't do anything without praying. We find a number of occasions in the scripture where it's actually marked out that he spent the night praying, or he prayed before this, he prayed before that. He prayed so much that his disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. I would have asked him to teach me to walk on water <laughs> and do all the cool things. But so impressive was his praying 
And, and you get this sense that after Jesus come, came back from one of these formal times of praying, if you will, we went off by himself, came back to pray, not just praying with his disciples or among them. And when he came back from those times of praying, there must have been something about him, must have been something true, must have been something happened afterwards that caused them to say, I want to do that. I want to know how to do that. I want to pray like that. And given all the miraculous and amazing things that Jesus did, uh, that's what they asked him about. Teach us to pray like that. And Jesus wasn't deterred in his praying by knowing that his father was omniscient. You know, sometimes we get deterred in our praying because we know that God knows what we're going to ask even before we ask it. And we think, so why should I spend the time doing that? Why should I pray when God already knows what I'm going to do? Jesus wasn't deterred by the fact that his, his father was sovereign, that his father had a plan. And in fact, his father was going to do all these things for the followers of Jesus that Jesus was going to pray. His father would, in fact, keep the followers of Jesus in his name. His father would give them joy. His, his father would make them one. His father would sanctify them. His father would make certain that these who, for whom Jesus had died, these those for whom Jesus had given eternal life, would, would be with Jesus in eternity. All that would come true. And yet, Jesus still prays these things. Why? Why would he still do that? Well, because he knew that these things were the very heart of his Father. And he knew these things were all consistent with the kingdom that he brought. In fact, I think if you ask Jesus, why do you pray these things? I think he would say, what do you think the Father and I talk about when we get together? We talk about all these things. We talk about how great the kingdom is. We talk about all that he's going to bring. We talk about all of these things. And, and, and this praying is the means by which they come. Now, just parenthetically, that's for us as well to think. What do we talk to God about? We talk to God about all the great things he's promised us. We talk, we talk to God about all the things that are true under his rule for his people. And we raise them to him. What else, what else is there to talk to God about except his great promises and all that he has planned and all that he's promised to do? And so Jesus is in the midst of that. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what the Father has planned. He knows what the Father has promised. The Father knows that Jesus knows that Jesus knows that the Father has promised them. And yet still, in the midst of that, he prays. Because it pleases him to do so and it glorifies his Father. And he doesn't know what else to pray about. And yet there's a burning, no doubt, in him to, to just make all these things known. He can't go on until he's had this conversation, until he's made this prayer, made these petitions to his Father. Because he knows, Jesus does, that in him the kingdom of God has come. That is, the gracious rule of God has come. And that people are going to become under the rule of God by the very work of Jesus and by the very witness of the Spirit and by the very witness of His church. He knows all that's going to take place. And so this is really a cry for the kingdom. A cry that in the midst of God's rule that His people be kept and protected just like a king would protect his citizens. He's praying, protect them, protect them, keep them. He, he prays that they be transformed, that they, that they become citizens of this kingdom and they live like it. They, they know how they're to live under this king in submission to him and obedience to him. 
They pray that this kingdom be unified, as every good kingdom must be. If they're going to march on, this kingdom must be unified. They must hold to the same truths, the same values, same beliefs. They must be filled with the same spirit to, to be unified together and have a hope as a people must have, a hope that a day will come when they'll be in the very presence of this king, the very one who's died for them, this very one who's loved them. And, and he says, you'll be right there. And he also prays that this would be a group of people, a kingdom of people under the rule of God, filled with joy. Because how else could you live under God other than filled with joy? Jesus says, it's my joy. It's the very joy that I have as the king. It's the very joy that I have of being the son of my father. It's the very joy that I know of being in relationship with him. I want you to have that joy. So he prays that we have it. And talking about the kingdom of God, the apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans in chapter 14. He says, you know, I could say any number and you guys would, well, it's probably true. Uh, it is, it is. Romans chapter 14. Uh, but he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. There's a big debate about whether you can eat this or drink that or eat that or whatever. And Paul says, I'll talk about that and I'll give you some principles about that. But that's really not the essence of the kingdom of God. Because you see, the essence of the kingdom of God isn't so much what we take in, but the essence of the kingdom of God is this. It's righteousness and it's peace and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, as he's praying to his Father, knows what the kingdom of God is. He knows that it's righteousness, and he knows that he is that righteousness, and that he will bring that righteousness. He is that righteousness in the sense that he is the very one who is right with God. And all that he does is right with God. And now he comes to be our righteousness. Everywhere where we've sinned, every place where we've erred, every place where we've gone awry, Jesus has not. Jesus has done it perfectly. And so his righteousness is for us. So in this kingdom, he is our righteousness. And thus we receive righteousness from him as we live under God. And he is our peace. In the world, even in ourselves, there is a lack of peace. There is hostility. You know that even in your own heart. You know, the, the tension even inside yourself about what you ought to do and what you do. You can, we can look at the world and see where it's, where it's out of whack. But we can't fix it. Human beings have been trying generation after generation and after generation. And don't you know, people still, people still lie and cheat and steal. After all that we know, People even smoke cigarettes. I'm just surprised at that. Not that that's a huge sin or anything, but just with all that we know about that, people still do that. And, you know, you know you're going campus. Do you have to lock your bike? We haven't evolved. Even in the upper educational classes, we haven't evolved enough yet to people stop stealing. People still, even with all we know, right? So there isn't peace even within ourselves. There isn't peace among us. You know that. You know that even in good relationships, there can be moments of hostility and difficulties. Um, husbands and wives know that. Some husbands and wives, not most, not, you know, that I'm aware of. But I've been told, husbands and wives, parents and children, uh, there's hostility even in a good relationship. And yet, and sometimes those relationships deteriorate to such a degree that there's great hostility there. We know that there's hostility of one social class to another social class, one ethnic group to another ethnic group, one country in the context of another country. We have yet to see that war that ends all wars. 
Still there is war, there's hostility, there's no peace. Jesus comes to bring peace, peace among people as they come under the very lordship of his rule. And not only that, there isn't peace between human beings and God. Jesus comes to bring that. He is that peace. He takes the very wrath of God, the hostility that God has for us for messing up his world, for sinning against him, for being uh, hostile towards him and, and not obeying him and honoring him as God and not giving him thanks as we ought. Jesus comes and takes that hostility upon himself. And then the Spirit comes to change our hearts so that God's wrath is taken and our hearts renewed so that we're reconciled to him, so that we can trust in him. Jesus comes to do all of that. So in him there's righteousness and there's peace. But he also says in the midst of all this, it's the best of all possible life that anyone could ever imagine because in the midst of that, there is joy. And Jesus thus prays to his Father, give them my joy. May they know my joy. This week I played a little game. I wrote on the top of my paper, I wrote, Jesus is a man of. And then I played fill in the blank. And here's the kinds of words that came to my mind. What would come to your mind if somebody gave you that question? Jesus is a man of, you may say a man of prayer, given this context, a man of compassion, a man of mercy, um, a man of justice, a man of grace, a man of power. I might even quote the prophet Isaiah, uh, a man who is uh, filled with sorrow and acquainted with grief. That kind of a man. But in this context, in the context of what the Apostle John is writing to us in recording this prayer and all the events that took place that night, the theme there is that Jesus is a man of joy. He's a man of joy. There's something in him that he would describe as joy. And the thing that he wants to transfer, the thing that he wants to give at that moment in time to his disciples, to us, is this sense of joy. Now the question is, where does this joy have its source in Jesus? What's the source of Jesus' joy? If we go back just a little bit in this evening of, of Jesus that John records in John chapter 15, verse uh, 9, we read this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, verse 11 Jesus says, I told you these things, these particular things. And he's told them a lot that night. And, and, and you can make traces from all that he's told them back to this idea of joy. But in this very specific context, just in these couple of sentences, Jesus tells them something very significant, I think, about his own joy. He says, as the Father has loved me. And then in verse 10, he says that um, he abides in his Father's love. Now, the place where Jesus would say he lived or resided would be in the love of his Father. That's what this word abide means. It means to remain. It means to live. Uh, you can abide in your abode, if you will. I mean, it's, it's this place where you live. And so he remains in his Father's love. That's his, his central point, if you will. That's his identity, the very love of his Father 
towards Him. He abides there. He remains there. He stays there. He lives there. He arranges His whole life around this abiding in His Father's love. Now, my southern friends, uh, and I like southerners, by the way, um, <clears throat> lived in the South. I don't have to make excuses. Uh, but uh, use this expression, abide, in an interesting kind of way very often. It's, it's quite, at least the, the southerners that I know, uh, it's, it's quite a part of their, their vocabulary. And they use it something like this. That a friend said to me recently, said, and I won't use the draw, but it took a number of syllables to get all this out. But he, um, he said, I can't abide working the night shift. And what he meant by that is, I can't live there. I can't arrange my life around this night shift. It, it's going to overtake me, uh, and so I just can't abide that. can't tolerate it. And so when Jesus uses it more positively, and he says, I want you to abide, he says, I abide in my Father's love, he means I live there. I arrange my whole life around the Father's love. That's what informs me. And that, you see, is the, is the beginning point, a crucial point, in being a person who has joy. Because, you see, here's Jesus, utterly just secure in his Father's love. Now, what that means is this, that he knows, because his Father loves him, in the deepest and richest sense of that word, he knows that his Father has his best interest in mind. Thus, he knows that his Father would never lead him anywhere that wouldn't be in Jesus' best interest. He, he knows that he wouldn't lead Jesus anywhere that wouldn't be for his good. That's what love is. If you love another, it means that other person matters to you. and That other person matters to you in such a degree that you would never lead them into a place that would ultimately be for their harm. But you would lead them places where it was for their good. You would give them counsel for their good. Now, it is also true that this one who loves Jesus is omniscient. So this one who loves Jesus knows everything. That helps. Because, you see, he knows everything. He knows exactly what would be best in every circumstance, every situation, and what circumstance and situation in every situation would be good for Jesus. And so Jesus is utterly content in that relationship utterly content in that love. And when you're loved by one who is omniscient, then you can trust him. Because he knows what's best. And he loves you. And so he'll only counsel and lead into what is best. And so Jesus knows that his Father loves him. And he knows his Father is omniscient. And he knows his Father is all-powerful. That is, his Father controls all circumstances, ultimately. And so in the midst of all that, he can trust his Father. So that when his Father says, do this or do that, Jesus can then obey. And he can obey with this sense of perfect security, perfect comfort, perfect contentment, knowing that even if it looks like it's a difficult and dangerous situation, even if it looks like it's a situation that's going to go bad for me, even though it looks like a situation that might be harmful to me, even though it may start out in pain, I know because it's my Father who loves me and who is wise and who is powerful, who is leading me, it will ultimately work out for good. And one of the amazing statements of Jesus is that he went to the cross filled with joy. The author of Hebrews uh, puts it like this in Hebrews 
In chapter 12, in verse 2, he writes, Look to Jesus, or looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It was for joy that Jesus went to the cross. There was something in him that he would call joy, that the Holy Spirit would call joy, as the author of Hebrews laid it out for us. And he said, that was in him when he went to the cross. Well, notice the circumstances when he went to the cross. They didn't look good. And they probably didn't feel good. But there's something in Jesus that enabled him to go through that. And what enabled Jesus to go through that was the fact that he knew that he was doing this under the direction of his Father. And he knew that his Father knew everything. And he knew that his Father was powerful to bring about the good results. And he knew that his Father loved him. And so in the midst of all that, there is something in Jesus, this trust of his Father, to know that he wouldn't be abandoned to the grave, to know that he would rise, to know that everything that his Father had promised him would come true, even though at that moment there probably wasn't very much on Jesus' body that wasn't ripped to shreds and that he wasn't torn to within an inch of his life, so much so that he couldn't even carry the crossbar from where it began to the mountain where he would be crucified. And he said, in all of that, there was joy. And he wants us to have that. He wants us to have that joy. Now, what is joy? It's quite a difficult thing to define, quite frankly. I went on dictionary.com and read till I was read. And it, it just kept saying all kinds of things. Some which seemed to fit, some which things that didn't fit. J.I. Packer, a theologian type, uh, puts it uh, puts it like this, if I can find it. I wish I could use these notes. Um, oh, there you go. No, that's not it. Ah, there it is. Packer puts it like this. He says, the joy is the very essence of satisfied living. Joy is at the heart of satisfied living. He says, there's something uh, about being utterly satisfied with one's life that is reflected in joy. And it's difficult to know how that joy is going to manifest itself in the emotions of a person. We, 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 we express our emotions quite differently. Um, two people can experience the same happy events and one laugh and one cry. They're normally called husbands and wives. But uh, that's kind of why we don't quite get it all the time. But um, uh, So it's difficult to know how that's going to express itself in in our emotions. But joy is something you know when you have it and you know when you don't have it. There's something about contentment here, something about being satisfied. Packer goes on to put it like this. He says, joy is a happiness of heart linked with good feelings of one sort or another. He's British, so he doesn't really know how to say this. Um, this, is, this word joy covers an entire spectrum of, of what might be called rapturous. It ranges from the extreme achings of ecstasy to the quiet thrill of contentment. He says, joy is a condition, a condition that, ex, that is experienced, but it's more than a feeling. It's primarily a state of mind. In other words, there's something going on inside of a person that results in joy. It isn't just a, a happiness or a cheerfulness of spirit. There's something deeper than that. 
It, it, it's more related to this sense of, of satisfaction, of being deeply satisfied, this sense of deep contentment, this sense of deep security, this sense of knowing that all is well, no matter what it looks like, no matter what it seems like. Now, in a nice piece on Joy Packer, J.I. Packer makes this observation from his reading. He says that the psychologists, psychiatrists have often said four things are necessary or important for a person to have joy. And he finds them all in Jesus, and he finds them all in us. Not that psychology is, is our standard, but there's a consistency here and a helpful one. Number one, he says, first of all, someone to have real joy must know that they're loved. There must be this sense that you matter to someone else. Could you imagine, and some of you may know this feeling. Some of you may have experienced this growing up. Some of you may still know it in some measure. The sense of, I don't matter to anybody. Nobody really cares. They don't care what I think. They don't care what I say. They don't care what I do. They don't care who I am. They don't care where I live. They simply, nobody, I just don't matter to anybody. And if you're in that kind of a situation, joy is absent from your life. There is no sense of completeness. There is no sense of contentedness. There is no sense of satisfaction. And there's this sense in the heart of a human being to, 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 have, to be loved by another. That's the significant words of Jesus. As the Father has loved me, and as he says, I abide in my Father's love, you get this sense within the Trinity itself, within Father and Son, this deep abiding love. I live there. I arrange my whole life around it. I have utter confidence and trust in my Father's goodness and his, 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 his well-being uh, for me. And that's true for us as believers, you see that we can know this joy because we do know that we are loved by God. We don't have to pretend it. We don't have to make it up. It doesn't have to be part of a philosophy that we make up ourselves. It's simply true of us. And if I could say it this crassly, God has proven His love for us. He's condescended to prove to us that He loves us. Loves us. The Apostle writes this, God demonstrates His own kind of love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about that. He's saying, when, if you would have met God, you would have spit in his face, that's how Luther put it, Christ died for us. When we were his enemies, when we were sinners, when we were turned against him, Christ, he gave Christ for us. So the Apostle goes on to say, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, if he's given to us Jesus, doesn't that prove something to us? Doesn't that tell us that he won't withhold any good thing? He's already paid the ultimate sacrifice. He's already given the greatest thing of greatest value. Uh, Jesus himself is very son. So why would we not trust him? Why would we not think that he wouldn't give uh, us all? Every good thing have good in mind for us. Thus, he would go on to say, thus nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. There isn't anything. Whatever you name it, it can't separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. We, as a people, are loved. We matter in an amazing way to God. He cares what we think. He cares what we do. He cares our, about our beginnings. He cares about our end. And he's made provision for all of that, you see. 
in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing is not only do we need to know that we're loved by another, that we matter to someone, but also that we can look at our circumstances and have a sense, a belief, a confidence that this is going to end up ultimately for our good. Jesus had that as he went to the cross. He knew it was going to end good. It didn't look good, but he knew it was going to end good. He knew good was going to come from this. His father had promised. His father had promised to raise him from the dead. His father had promised to give him a people. His father had promised that, that in his dying, he would redeem this people for God, this people of God. And so Jesus knew that. And so he went to the cross knowing that good would be the outcome, no matter how, no matter what it looked in that circumstance. And there he was. And so he was able to go in the midst of that. He was able to go filled with sorrow and grief because of the sin of people and the events of the day. But yet still in the midst of that, there was something in him. This joy. He knew it was right. He knew it would be good. Do you know that everybody believes that good is going to come from terrible things, difficult things? Almost everybody believes that. You, you watch any tragedy that takes place and they talk to people, believers and unbelievers, and everybody says uh, something good has got to come from this. And you know why they say that? They say that because if it doesn't, then it's just been a worthless, vain event. And nobody wants to face that. Nobody wants to think that whatever it is that we go through isn't going to be valuable in one sense or another. Now, the truth of the matter is, for believers in Christ, we have the assurance, not on our own wisdom or not just because of experience that may take place, but God has said to us, He works all things together for good for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And you know what His purpose is? His purpose is a good purpose. His good purpose is to prepare us for glory. His good purpose is to conform us to the image of Christ. His good purpose is to restore us to himself. And that's the good purpose. He says, no matter what happens in life, you can always cling to that. You always know that this will work ultimately in such a way that will cause you to be better fit for heaven, that will cause you to be more conformed to the image of Christ. There is real purpose in everything, and God is working that out in history through all kinds of events, some which we call good, some which we call disastrous. Tragedies. But he says he really is at work in all of those. And so as a people of God, like Jesus, we can think back. I know I'm loved by God who is omniscient, who is wise. I know I'm loved by God, who is powerful and can order any event in any circumstance. I know that I'm loved by God. Therefore, He will work good in my circumstance through this situation, whether I see it or whether I don't. I can therefore trust Him. Thus, in trusting Him, I can therefore follow Him, obey Him. Packer goes on to say this. He says, there's a third thing that's associated with joy. Not just being loved by another. Not just being able to look at your circumstances and seeing that good is going to come and being assured of that. But thirdly this, that you have something that's of great worth. 
People that have within themselves and know that they have something, they possess something that's of great value are people that hang on to that thing of great value. And no matter what else gets torn away, they have this sense of joy, this sense of utter contentment and satisfaction to know, no matter what else you take from me, I have this, and this is worth more than all that you've taken from me. We see that as uh, the Apostle Paul writes this in, 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 in an astounding letter. Paul writes the book of Philippians when he's in prison. And the theme of Philippians is what? Rejoicing. It's joy. It's, it's, it's on the, every page. It's everywhere. He's talking about this. And if you picture him in your mind, he's chained to a Roman guard. He, there he is. He can't get away. He isn't free. And not only that, but he goes, he goes on to say that people are preaching in such a way that's making his life even more miserable. And yet still, he says, rejoice, and he will rejoice as well. Because he knows that they cannot take from him that which he has. And that which he has that they cannot take is of great value. It's of eternal worth. And he clings to that. Almost as if to say, you can't take this. And this is all that's important. So I can still be filled with joy. He puts it like this. He said, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in them. Now understand that what he lists as rubbish are things which we like. He lost his freedom. He lost his health. He lost his social standing. He lost any credibility that would come from a resume that would say, this is where I was born, and this is where I went to school, and this is who I studied under, and this is what I've done with my life, and this is what other people say about me. He lost all of that. And he was able to say, I count them as rubbish. Now, they're not absolute rubbish. There's some value to that sort of thing, to those kinds of things in some way, shape, or form. But he's saying, compared to what I still have, compared to what you can't take, they're, just, they're unnecessary. And so he says, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, listen, what I have is that in the eyes of God, I'm righteous. I told God where I went to school, he wasn't impressed. I told God all the languages I could speak, he wasn't impressed. I told God about the family that I was born into, he wasn't impressed. I told him that I clung to Jesus. He was impressed. And the reason he was impressed was not my clinging, but Jesus, who is my righteousness. And he says, yes, that is it. His righteousness for you. Now you have something. No one can take it. Everything else is rubbish. So Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes um, through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He's saying, this is what's important. So I lose all of this, but you can't take this, and you can't take this joy that that brings. Fourth thing, this. Not only is it that we need to know that we're loved by someone, and a Christian thus has infinite joy because we're loved by the God of the universe, and thus can trust Him and obey Him and abide in Him. 
Not only that, but not only to be able to see that things are good no matter what the circumstance. And again, I'm rushing over this, but think of all the horrible circumstances in your life, lives, even the ones that you're going through right now. This isn't theory. This is real. You have, we have diseases and we have people dying and we have people in rebellion and we have marriages falling apart and we have unemployment. We have all kinds of things in the midst of our body, right? And we have to look at that and how can we see that good is going to come from those things? We can only do that when we know, know that we're loved by this one who is God. And then, not only that, but we know we have something valuable, righteousness. And not only that, he says, not only do you have possessed something of great value, it's not only valuable to you, but it's valuable to everyone. What you possess is not only valuable to you, but it's valuable to everyone. In fact, great joy comes from being able to give this away, being able to give this to others. Now, it's interesting, in the midst of this night in which Jesus was betrayed as he's talking to his disciples, one of the things that's running through this whole night is this expression, love one another as I have loved you. In fact, as we move on from just that little passage I read out of John chapter 15, verses 9 through 11, uh, verse it goes like this. Let me just reread it. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Again, just review. The progression is like this. I know that he loves me. I know that he has my best interest in mind. I know that he's the sovereign, wise God, thus I can trust him. If I trust him, then I'll arrange my whole life around his love. And arranging my whole life around his love means then that I will obey him. Why would I not? Why would I not listen to every bit of counsel that he gives me? Why would I not listen to every command that he makes if he is the God who loves me and thus I trust him? So my obedience comes from my abiding. My abiding comes from knowing that he loves me. And so then he goes on to say this, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another. He's saying, don't hang on to this valuable thing you have. If you do and you hoard it, you will have the same disposition of every hoarder. Do you know what the disposition of a miser is? It's just bitterness. People who simply accumulate valuable stuff for themselves and they keep it for themselves and they build walls around it in order to keep it for themselves are miserable people. There's never any joy in selfishness. But you see, the world tells us exactly that. The world says, listen, accumulate and you'll be filled with joy. Get stuff and you'll be filled with joy. Isolate yourself from all the people you don't like and all the people that are a threat to you and all the people that are different than you. Isolate yourself from all those people and, and you'll be filled with joy. You'll, you'll be safe and secure. And you know what? People like that become, they become paranoid. They become worried somebody's going to steal their stuff. They become preoccupied with, bigging, with, with building bigger walls and, and vaults, not only externally around their, their, their houses, but internally in their own lives. And they become, in the most extreme case, isolated, bitter, fearful people who have a bunch of stuff. 
Because it just isn't true. To have real joy means you know you possess something of great value and you don't keep it for yourself. You actually give it to others. That was the great joy that Jesus knew in infinite proportions. When he was going to the cross, he was giving his life away. When he was going to the cross, he was pouring out his life. Why? So that somebody else could have what he knew which was the love of the Father, which was the relationship with the Father. And that brought him great joy. You get the sense as he goes to the cross, you know, again, it was no picnic. I don't want to make light of any of this, please. In the midst of all that drama, in the midst of all that sorrow and sadness and grief and pain, there is this sense of joy in Jesus when he knows what's going to be the outcome. And the outcome that he knows it's going to be is that people are going to be reconciled to God. And they're going to know what he knows. And so he's giving it away at that point. And so he says to us, if you really want to have joy, if you want to know my joy, then love each other. Because if you don't, you'll be miserable and you won't have it. When I do a wedding, I always say to the couple, if you want to be filled with joy, then you need to love each other. If you live your life as a husband or a wife, if you live your life as a friend, if you live your life as a believer in Christ, and you're not giving of yourself, but you're keeping, if you're always thinking of yourself, and how is this going to affect me, and what am I going to lose if I do that, you'll be utterly miserable. You'll feel for a while self-protected, But after a while, you'll die. Marriage will die. Friendships will die. To have real joy means you give it. And Jesus said, there's a joy in that that I want you to have. Now, what should we do? Now, you say, well, why should we do anything? Jesus is praying for joy. So won't it just come? Won't it just sort of hit me like a ton of bricks? You know, there shouldn't do that. Uh, Joyce transcribes my sermons and she buzzes me every once in a while and says, how do you spell? But um, um, just a guy still makes sound effects. But but it just doesn't come as a bundle and plop down on us. When, When God answers particular prayers, he often does it by way of means that we take up by faith, for instance. I'm sure there's at least one student present today who's praying to pass this semester. It might be a prayer and fasting. Uh, might have all your friends praying. Uh, so what should you do? You should study in faith, right? Because that's the means by which God is likely to answer that prayer. Please don't test him on that. Because uh, you'll fail, most likely. But uh, so, so study in faith. And that's how that prayer gets answered. When, when you pray, if you need money, you pray for a job. What do you do? I mean, you pray for, you pray for income. What do you do? Well, you, you look for a job. It's the means through which it's probably going to happen. If you're sick, you pray for healing. But then in faith, you go to the doctors trusting that he could use medicine to, in order to make you better. Uh, Nehemiah, when, was, when the uh, Israelites were being attacked and they were building the wall around Jerusalem, prayed that they'd be protected and then said, pick up your swords. Was that a lack of faith? No, that was utter faith. He knew the means through which God would answer that prayer of protection was by 
picking up the sword. And so if we're going to people, be people filled with joy, there's something we must do. Paul puts it like this in Philippians in chapter 4. Finally, brothers, after he tells them all about this rejoicing, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything, if there's anything excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. When we're going through stuff that's sucking away joy, we must be intentional intentional about hanging on to this joy. Now, we can hang on to it in faith because we know Jesus is interceding for us that we would have this joy. So it isn't fruitless. And it isn't just on our own. He's helping us in the midst of this. But the means by which He will help us, the means through which He'll help us, is to get our thinking right. He'll say, remember, you're loved by my Father. Remember, I love you. Think about who we are. Think about what that means. Remember, you matter. Remember that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is arranging everything in such a way that whatever you're presently experiencing, good for you, will come. You'll be conformed to the image of Christ. You'll be made more fit for heaven. Even something else perhaps you'll see. Think about that. Cling to that. Tenaciously. Don't let that thought go. Don't let the world steal that away from you. Don't let them tell you it's vain, it's fruitless to trust in Jesus. Hang on to that with every ounce of your being. Remember that what you have, that what no one can take, that what disease can't take, that what the economy can't take, that what political forces can't take, that what your husband or your wife or your kids or your employer or your friend or your neighbor or a tornado, what can't be taken from you is this righteousness that you have in Jesus and that means everything. Cling to that with all your might and this too. That in the midst of whatever circumstances you're going through, however difficult it is, understand that God can still use you to give it away. Even if you're flat on your back. Even if you're unemployed. Even if you're going through a horrible relationship situation. Even if you're sad because of deep disappointment and grief, that God can help you give it away. And in the giving away of it, you'll be filled with joy. Let's pray. Father, as we come to pray, I, I would join with our intercessor, our Lord Jesus. And pray that we would have joy. Pray that you would discipline us in such a way to think right thoughts, to tell ourselves the truth, to believe the truth, that God is good, that he does love us, that he is wise, that his ways are best. God, enable us to meditate tenaciously, cling to that which we know to be true because of Christ. Father, enable us to live dependent upon you, knowing that you love us, Enable us to love one another as Christ has loved us, that we may know his joy. Father, we pray that even in times of difficulty, that this hope that we have, this joy that we have would be seen by others and we would have opportunity even 
to share of it and give it away and know even fuller joy than ever before. Father, I pray for those who are suffering because it's at times of suffering that the world comes and tries to snatch away joy by saying God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really care for you. God isn't really working things. How could good come out of this? What you have in Him is not of such great value. You can get that in any other kinds of ways. And please don't try to share that with me. But Father, I pray that we wouldn't be hoodwinked by the world, that we wouldn't be tempted away. And those who are suffering, God, I pray that they would cling tenaciously to these truths. Father, for those that are living in in ease at the moment, that can be as difficult as living in suffering from time to time. So I pray that we not get confused by any prosperity, any even good health that we presently have, to think that our hope is in that. For it isn't. It's in the fact that you love us. It is the fact that you're at work. It is in the fact that you've given us the righteousness of Christ. It is in the fact that giving this righteousness message of the gospel of Christ away brings great joy. Father, there are many new surroundings as school starts. I pray for our little ones, our kindergartners, as they start a new school, perhaps a new year, our first graders as well. Seventh graders, they start junior high. Tenth graders, they begin high school. Father, those can be scary moments. I pray for them that they may know that you're with them, that you love them, that you've ordered their steps. And even when their locker won't open, I pray that they'll know that you're with them. Father, for students who returned to Lawrence, freshmen especially, I pray for them as they begin the year. Others as they seek out majors and all of that, that God, that you would give us a great sense of your presence. For teachers, bless them, God. For those who minister in various ways, all of us most certainly, as you call us to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would be with us. Uh, for those we support in ministry, the Lieben Goods, Father, as Kelly continues to work on his dissertation, I pray that you give him wisdom and strength. For Karen Pankratz with NAVS as she seeks your direction. For Rick Mumford as he leads uh, uh, Young Life, Father, I pray for all of them that your blessing would be upon them in such a way that they'd be filled with, fueled by uh, joy. Father, you command us to rejoice. We're sorry uh, that you must command us. We're sorry that we don't see things through all the circumstances that get us down and the security that we have in you, to, to see the hope that we have in you, to trust in you, to know that you love us and really do have our best interest in mind. So forgive us when we forget all of that when we become anxious and bitter. Father, fill us with the very joy that Jesus had. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind you that we have elders who are available to pray. They'll be in the office area. Please take advantage of that. God has called them to pray. God has ordained elders in the life of the church to be, to be prayers, particularly for people. So um, avail yourself of that opportunity. They'll be back in the off, by the office area. Uh, the response to our benediction will be to sing together uh, this song that our worship leaders will lead us in. So please receive this.
That is God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And together let us sing. And I love you is more than enough for all of me for every thirst and every need you satisfy me with your love and all I have in you is more than enough Supply my breath of life, still more awesome than I know. You are my reward, worth living for. Still more awesome than I know, and all of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst Every need you satisfy me with your love, and all I have in you is more than enough. You're my sacrifice of greatest price, still more awesome than I know. You're my coming King, you are everything, still more awesome than I know, and all of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need, you satisfy me with your love, and all I